As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. After beating Manchester City on Wednesday night, Aston Villa backed that up against Arsenal on Saturday. Having won 15 games in a row at home, Unai Emery has now taken Villa to within two points of the Premier League summit. So what is possible for Aston Villa this season? And should they be considered title contenders? When you beat City on Arsenal in a week, uh, one game controlling them, like I've never seen Man City being controlled, then suffering against Arsenal for 85 minutes and managing to win again. I'm a believer, mate. I'm Ayo Akimolare. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Joining us for the Athletic Football Podcast today, we've got the Athletic Football Correspondent, David Ornstein, Aston Villa writer, Jacob Tanswell, and also our data writer, Tom Harris, as well. Jacob, let's get into this, right? And I'm just going to use your words. Aston Villa beating Manchester City and Arsenal. New ground being broken and progress being made under Unai Emery. It's been a remarkable four or five days, really. You know, everyone was really anticipating Arsenal and Man City. You know, Villa have been on this incredible home winning run, but it was always felt that these two would be the acid test. You know, they've had fairly favourable fixtures at home before, but these two are fantastic in terms of marking where Villa were in their progress. And Man City obviously came first. They put on a performance for the ages. This was one of, you know, Wiley Fowles to be one of Villa's best performance in decades. And then the question was, OK, Arsenal are coming thick and fast. They're coming in a few days' time. Have Villa got the energy? Have they got the capacity to go from that high of Wednesday night and to put in another performance? And, you know, I'm sure we'll come on to it, but it was a very different performance, but they showed a different side to them. And the excitement around Villa Park at the full-time whistle was palpable. Tom, this is a really interesting conversation around Aston Villa, especially at home. And um, as Jacob just alluded to, yeah, two very different victories, but worthwhile nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, the first one against City was dominant from start to finish. The the game plan was, you know, perfect, executed really well, and, and City didn't really have an answer. This game against Arsenal, I think Arsenal did have an answer to some of Aston Villa's techniques to, to get the ball forward. Uh, I think noticeably, you know, Villa, when they were forced to play into the midfield, 
Arsenal were kind of waiting for them with with a bit of a box midfield with with Zinchenko coming into it. And you know, quite a lot of times actually Arsenal did win the ball in those advanced areas and, and get at Villa. And yeah, at the end of the day, you know, Arsenal had a lot of chances. There was also a bit of controversy as well. You know, it could have gone either way. But I think this one was more about the mental resolve and, the, you know, the physical resilience that this team has. Yeah, and David, I mean, from an Unai Emery perspective, obviously, after 18 months at Arsenal, uh, lost his job. But um, a, a manager, and we'll go on to this a bit deeper on later on, that's looking to, to, to make a name for himself, you'd like to think, in the Premier League. Yeah, definitely. There was unfinished business, Io, after what happened at Arsenal. Look, it was extremely difficult circumstances replacing Arsene Wenger after 22 years at the helm. You could argue whoever took that role on uh, was destined to fail or at least struggle. The same with Manchester United post Sir Alex Ferguson. It was Unai Emery. He probably stood as good a chance as anybody having uh, just come from PSG and um, that sort of big club, powerful dressing room and a lot of politics around the place but it it got the better of him I think there was sort of fault on on all sides I don't think he managed in exactly the way he would like his first job in England and language issues and um, some of the things he tried to implement that maybe didn't go down too well the communication wasn't ideal uh, at times and I think Arsenal were going through a, a period of major upheaval and flux and changes at all levels of the club to the extent that it was just a, a marriage that was destined to fail I think and there wasn't a great deal of, of patience when suddenly all of the faith and the backing um, that he was being given came to nothing so he went away he licked his wounds um, he reset he developed himself personally and professionally professionally. Um, he did well, of course, at, at Villarreal. He actually uh, returned to haunt Arsenal. I think it was in the Europa League. But what we're seeing now is um, a new, a better and improved Unai Emery, who crucially has the complete and utter support and backing of the Aston Villa ownership. Uh, they've given him carte blanche, uh, freedom, authority, power, money, uh, very few people getting in the way of himself and the ownership, Nasef Sawiris and Wes Edens. From day one, they've put their money where their mouths are. Everything is set up for him to succeed there. I think he's doing an incredible job so far. And it really is one of the, if not the, story of the season so far. Uh, Jacob, I know, you, you know you've know you been following Villa a lot recently for, for, for The Athletic. And I want to get your thoughts on this, Tom, as well, from a sort of statistic, more sort of perspective. But... Jacob, what are the elements or those defining elements of Unai Emery's Aston Villa at this moment in time? It's about bravery and courage because if you go back to when Villa last lost a home game, which was against Arsenal in February, Emery was really annoyed afterwards. He Over several meetings, post-game, he was really annoyed at the fact that Villa were drawing 2-2 until the final minutes and Villa players, especially in defence, started to kick the ball away. And Emery's thinking, no, this is, we have to stamp our authority here. This is our, our home turf. This is Villa Park. We've got to keep the ball. We've got to be the team that's in the ascendancy. We can't be holding on for a 2-2. And, you know, rightfully, in his opinion, Villa got their comeuppance and Arsenal scoring a couple more. So it's all about having the bravery, having this elite mentality, best-of-class mentality that's not only permeated throughout the club, it's on the pitch as well. So you go, to, you see Man City you know, no team does what Villa did to Man City. Usually you, you might get a, you know, a goal on a set piece or on a counter. Villa dominated and that it, it, that is the quintessential Emery performance, especially at Villa Park. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, if you look at both of the goals scored this week, this historic week for Aston Villa, they both started from the back and it was patient build-up, which kind of drew the Man City press in, drew the Arsenal press in, and they were brave in the middle, they played through and they were incisive in, in, in the important moments. So I think the Arsenal one in particular is really impressive because you've got Martinez with his, his studs on the ball, beckoning the pressure. Pau Torres plays a nice ball into Watkins, who drops into midfield. So there's a bit of flexibility and fluidity there. Kamara is very brave um, in the middle. He's fighting off challenges from all angles. And then there's that kind of really nice kind of spin away into the space. And then Bailey's off. And then the pullback, which is another feature of Vilna Emery's Aston Villa, these cutback goals, eventually, yeah, got, got, them, got them the win. So... It's you know it's all about manipulating the opposition, playing into the space, and with the technical ability of the midfielders, plus kind of the fluid movement and the direct running power of Watkins and Bailey at the top. It's it's a really potent combination. The way that Villa want to play, Tom alluded to it in terms of beckoning the press, trying to play through, is to overload central areas. He did it fantastically against Man City. They locked on man for man. They try and get behind the lines, in between the lines, and that's why John McGinn and Yuri Tillemans recently have been so influential. But even when they do sign a winger, you know, Musa Diaby came in. From- <laughs> By Leverkusen, <laughs> he's not even a winger anymore. He's been repackaged. This is you're playing up front. <laughs> we're we're going to sign a right winger, and we're going to actually play him up front. So I think you know, apart from Leon Bailey, who's the only one you know, really, he's an out and out winger on the on the right hand side. The goal and the key is to funnel play centrally into the number tens, and then everything comes from there. All the attacking patterns come from there. Like Tom said, the cutback crosses, Ollie Watkins making the movement, and it just feels like there's a real change of tempo when they go forward, and it's just so exciting to watch. Yeah, I mean, he did it at Villarreal as well. I mean, um, there was a performance I remember really strongly against uh, Bayern Munich when they won the first leg 1-0, and there was Francis Coquelin out on the left, um, and Giovanni Lacelso out on the right. And uh, it worked. They, they beat one of the best teams in the world, one goal to nil, to get into the Champions League semi-final, which is unbelievable. But yeah, it's all about kind of dragging players in to then exploit that space. And yeah, with, with Bailey, who has just been unbelievable in the last couple of weeks, you know, his forward running power and his pace is, is causing all kinds of problems. Yeah, I was really interested when I was reading Jacob's piece about how Emery held a training session on the morning of the Arsenal match just to run through everything one final time and get the drills and the plays really ingrained in the players' bodies and minds. It's not unheard of. You've seen uh, Borussia Dortmund training in London parks before playing Champions League games uh, against English clubs. But it sort of crystallised to me how there's a playbook for Emery. There are very clear patterns. You know, we've heard stories about how Austin McPhee works with him and even Emery really tests his staff when it comes to the the set pieces and these preordained movements and triggers. And he's such a methodical coach in a way that from what we hear, with all due respect, Villa didn't have in the previous regime. And the training sessions are described to us as being like night and day from the Gerard regime to the Emery regime. And the sort of minutiae that Emery goes into, the way staff tell us that he has his head in his laptop for hours upon hours, uh, cutting his own clips of previous matches of opponents, um, talking to his staff, holding very long meetings, but still despite what must be quite a laborious and and at times I know from Arsenal, boring process for a lot of players, that they see it works. They respect his professionalism and they've got the utmost admiration for him because it is evidencing itself 
it's actions. They speak louder than words. It's it's coming to fruition in front of their very eyes. You've got John McGinn, one of the best midfielders in the league. And that, therefore, whether you like me saying it or not, means the world. Despite him signing for Villa for such a small amount of money and compared to some of the Premier League's uh, most expensive players in his position now. And, and everywhere you look, it, it's very interesting to me that we talk about a Diaby or a Pau Torres. But outside of that, largely it's players that were signed before Emery got to the club. And under the previous sporting director, Johan Langer, who's now at Tottenham, he's been replaced by Monchi. And we'll see how the recruitment evolves over time. Of course, there was Moreno too last January. But this is largely the same nucleus of players who are just being brought to an entirely new level. And it really tells me that, you know, they don't need tons of money. Everybody's saying it. Will Emery want to join a bigger club that has greater financial power and can back him further in the market maybe he's got enough at Aston Villa and and his own coaching skill and prowess is going to lead them to to where they want to go and and really I don't think he'll have this level of authority anywhere else uh, perhaps in his career I just want to pick up what you just said there David in terms of not necessarily it always being about buying players after players because Villa's still got a lot of players from, from before Emery's time. That sync between ownership and, and management is quite evident to see on the field as well. Yes, yeah, great question. It's a really important point um, because uh, look, this was a, an appointment that was, I think, recommended to uh, Nasef Sawiris, Wes Edens as owners, by people at the club as being the dream scenario, the first choice if uh, in the ideal world, you can get this person going a point to Emery. It was then up to the ownership themselves and Sawiris in particular to land him. And land him, he did. And obviously there was the chief executive, Christian Perslow, there at the time contributing. Uh, he's now left the club. But really the owners have come away from this with a huge amount of credit. And what was quite interesting and, and unconventional in this modern era is that they said, it's going to be us and you. You know, we're going to work with you directly. That We're not going to put people in between us. Um, uh, we're going to give you all of the uh, freedom and autonomy that you want to, to appoint staff. Uh, Damien Vidigani next to him as his right-hand man and, and Monchi subsequently, loads of analysts and scouts and data people, his assistant Paco. And um, you're in charge of this. You're the boss. Uh, but we're going to be there to support you and, and back you where we can in the market or just in terms of the infrastructure and, and molding the club that you want in Aston Villa. And I think that's the only way Emery uh, can really operate if he's going to succeed in football because he uh, he's an obsessive. He he likes to be uh, in control of even the, the smallest details. And that methodology seems to be putting them on, on the right path and making the most of the resources at their disposal, irrespective of what they will or won't be able to do in, in the market that we'll come on to talk about. Now, that does come with um, some jeopardy potentially because one, what if it goes wrong? And we've seen these situations elsewhere in the past. You've built too heavily around one person. You've allowed them to bring in all of their own people. Results take a slump. Confidence from the top uh, starts to plummet. You need to get rid of that person, but everything has been structured around them. And, and you've then got to get rid of them all. Or even if you don't, then some will want to go once their boss has gone out of loyalty and it leaves a, a massive vacuum. Well, Villa would counter that we don't think 
think that's going to happen. We've got every faith that he's going to succeed. Second jeopardy is what if he starts to attract interest from elsewhere? The likes of Manchester City on the horizon if Pep Guardiola, who's under contract till 2025, chooses not to renew this time. You'll buy Munich's of this world, Juventus, Real Madrid even, um, and so on. And who in theory would be the sort of club that could offer Unai Emery the chance to challenge for the Premier League title uh, or the title in their country, the Champions League, lavish him with the riches to buy whatever players he wants and and spend exorbitantly. But they again are really confident that he won't have this set up elsewhere and and so he'll want to stay and this is where he wants to be and Villa have great ambitions of their own. David talks about the owners giving Unai Emery what he wants. It's completely true to the extent that they're actually buying clubs for him. You know, Igor <laughs> Emery's his his brother uh, and him acquired a majority uh, share in a Real Union, a regional third tier in, in Spain. And only last month, Villa announced a collaborative partnership where they essentially send coaches and share data uh, with, with Real Union. So everything is getting geared towards Emery, keeping him happy, making sure they placate always needs. And Emery wants a project where he he feels in control. He felt blindsided by his exit at Arsenal. So therefore, he's got a little bit more apprehension if he is going to take a bigger club, a bigger job at a bigger club. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Ayo Akinwalere. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Jacob, look, I, I remember a time where Aston Villa were so bad that West Bromwich Albion were the best team in, in the Midlands. And look, they're 15 consecutive home wins in a row now. Uh, I mean, this is fantastic. Can you just give the listeners a sense of what game day is like at Villa Park right now? Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I, I get the train and I walk to the, to the ground and past me, there's a big spanner with the strap line. The giant is waking up and that just... It kind of just echoes everything inside the stadium. Before the Man City game at kickoff, there's a huge roar. There's fireworks. He's spending more money on pyrotechnics. All these little things are so <laughs> silly. It's because it just plays into the notion that Villa Park is, is now a fortress. It's unbeatable. You know, Even when Arsenal on any other day should have got something out of that game, there's always that feeling that, hold on, they can't equalise it because Villa can't draw. They don't draw games. They don't lose games. They, they have to win these games. And yeah, every single win after every single game at full time, it just feels like the atmosphere gets louder. Everything's more optimistic. But what's incredible is that Emery doesn't really milk it. He just goes straight down a tunnel, high fives a few fans, gets into the change rooms and does his team talk. He's completely, he doesn't really care about all that at all. Let's talk about the title race. And I have to be very careful here because... 
Aston Villa are currently third in the Premier League as we speak. I mean, this is fantastic for, for, for the team. But we know there was another team this time last season that looked like they were going to do bits in the Premier League, which all fell off in around about February time or so. So they beat Manchester City, they beat Arsenal in the space of, what, four days. Only two points from the top. What defines them, Tom, as being potentially considered as title contenders? I think this week was a massive test in terms of beating the best. I think Emery's had it before at his former clubs that sometimes it's beating the, the lower teams in the division, which which kind of dictates league form. I mean, it happened at Villarreal. I remember very clearly they beat Juventus by three goals to nil, and then they lost to Cadiz, they lost to Levante, and then they beat Bayern Munich 1-0. So it's like, you know, you've got to kind of marry that kind of, you know, big game form with, uh, you know, a whole season kind of average. But yeah, the, the home form is amazing. They keep going ahead in games, which is really important. I mean, uh, I don't think Villa have lost any of their last 21 games in which they've taken a lead in the Premier League. So that's also, you know, really good that they can get into these positions and manage the games. But yeah, it's it's a different thing, you know, keeping this up for a whole season. Obviously, I think Jacob mentioned in his piece as well that the, you know, it was the same team between City and Arsenal. In the space of four days, uh, the same team playing flat out, you know, are there going to be injuries? Are there going to be, you know, energy levels, that kind of thing? But yeah, it's 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 a really good base, and I mean, opt to have them at four point one percent to win to win the Premier League this season. But you know, looking beyond that, seventy eight percent to to finish in top four, which for Aston Villa would be unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, Unai Emery stated um, after Manchester City that if they did actually beat Arsenal, they could be considered a, a, as title contenders. He's been quite quite pragmatic, but y- you get a sense, Jacob, there's there's a quite confidence there that there should be in the running. Yeah, although he won't say it publicly, you, you know, if you speak to those close to Emery, I think there's a real chance here that they can take advantage of the dysfunction at Chelsea, at Manchester United, maybe another team, and to get in the top four. But Emery always likes to pour cold water over it. Even before the start of the season, he said there's seven clubs better than us. And even when Villa have been going on this run, until they've played Tottenham, Man City and Arsenal, he's always said, how can we be considered top four contenders when the only clubs we've beaten uh, or played in the top six were Newcastle and Liverpool early this season? And we, and we got heavily beaten in both. But there is a feeling among players, amongst staff close to Emery that this is a really good opportunity and although he's trying to play it down every single week that keeps going by every time they keep going on the the progress and the momentum is with them. David I'm just wondering if the pedigree of Unai Emery plays to those perceptions of Villa and their chances for, for, for the title this season. I say chances because it's nothing so definite, obviously. It's too, it's still quite early to say, but you know, you, t- you look at the most successful manager in the Europa League and what he's doing currently at Aston Villa. Why shouldn't they be in with a chance of the title, let alone top four? Well, maybe because of what you just said there, he seems to be more of a cup manager than a a league manager when it comes to to winning trophies. And Arsenal fans will remember acutely, Ayo, that they were on the verge of qualifying for the Champions League under Emery and and they messed up quite spectacularly when push came to shove in the crunch point of the season. They also lost the Europa League final against the team in Chelsea who had already qualified for next season's competition. So that will be a test for Emery. Can he do it when it really matters at the business end of the season? And, you know, the evidence would suggest that he has matured and evolved and what we're seeing uh, bodes well. But 
listen, we're midway point of the season. And uh, for on the one hand, why not? You know, there's there's every chance they've got themselves in a great position. But, you know, as we saw with Tottenham earlier this season uh, and, and with no disrespect, they're a club in a similar bracket uh, up until now. Things can change extremely quickly. Looking at their fixture list, you know, it's not terribly daunting. They play no more of the traditional biggest clubs back-to-back until the end of the season. Um, The fixtures that immediately spring to mind as being hazardous are Manchester United away on Boxing Day night. I think that's going to be really tough despite what United are going through right now and Villa's away form hasn't been spectacular. I think then in um, early April, they play Manchester City away in a night match and then there's one game before they go to Arsenal. So those two defeated opponents uh, almost uh, in succession again. And then their penultimate match of the season is scheduled to be at home to Liverpool, um, who they had a famous victory against in in recent years. But that will, of course, be tough and and Liverpool may well be vying for the title themselves. Maybe that will be a a title showdown. So uh, there's a hell of a long way to go. Uh, A lot of questions that haven't been answered. And um, But one thing is is clear that Unai Emery and Villa... uh, are a match. They, sometimes these things happen, that it clicks. It's the right appointment at the right time. And even though he's quite sort of different to a lot of um, successful managers in this day and age, uh, our conversation earlier reminded me that when we were looking into the Villa situation for Jacob's piece, a number of people told me he's not a, a cuddly, tactile, touchy-feely manager, arm around the shoulder. He's quite sort of professional and there's distance not only with his players but also with his staff and that seems to have just worked so far at Aston Villa and and I think the basis the the foundations the the sort of momentum and the chemistry and cohesion there does put them in the frame to challenge in a way that we saw with Leicester City I watched a lot of them in that 2016 uh, title winning season and and they just became an unstoppable force with total belief in each other and the manager in Ranieri and what they were doing. And and I, I see semblance of that with, with Villa, although they are historically a bigger power. So I've not really answered your question because I, I just think it's <laughs> Im- impossible to, to predict at this point. But what I am seeing is a club that is building a, a sustainable a squad that and a club that can challenge at the top end in the in the future and and, and in Europe as well. And, and that's exactly the stated aim of this ownership. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to put a dampener on Villa fans. It's a lovely party at this moment in time, but who knows, right? It's still too early to say. But in, in, in that vein then, um, I'd love to hear all three of your uh, thoughts on this. What does that top four look like at this moment in time? Because for me, this is proving to be one of the most exciting title races we've seen in the Premier League for a while. And I think every one of us, whichever team we might be gunning for, is sort of trying to get someone to knock Manchester City off this pedestal for way too long. Uh, what are we thinking? We'll start with you, Jacob. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those races where actually teams are taking points off each other. You're going to the likes of Wolves away and you're not winning all that necessarily. You saw how much Liverpool and Man City struggled away to Luton. So it's all these type of teams that are you know perhaps down the bottom probably have a style that sometimes it's quite favourable against these bigger teams. In Villa's case, they've struggled there. They've drawn with Wolves away, Bournemouth away. They lost to Nottingham Forest. There's certain stylistic issues that are causing them problems, but are causing Man City and Liverpool problems. And that's just leading to this honeypot of a top four where no one really knows what's 
what's going to go on. It's not going to be, a, hopefully, not a huge points tally to win the league, but it just feels like it's going to be real competitive until the, the last day. Yeah, I'd agree with that in terms of, I mean, if you look at some of the managers down in the lower reaches of the Premier League now, you've got Andoni Areola, who is a brilliant tactician. You saw how he picked apart Man United the other day. Um, Gary O'Neill as well, and Wolves are hitting really well on the break. You've got Everton, who are in the incredible situation there, and I don't think anyone really wants to go to Goodison at the moment. So, yeah, it's it's really treacherous, but, you know, there are three teams, I think, Liverpool, Arsenal, Man City, probably will be in you know, the top three in, in another order, potentially, at the uh, end of the season. But yeah, that top, that fourth spot, I think, is, is really up for grabs. Well, form, pedigree, um, track record in, in recent times, quality and depth of squad. You can't look away from Manchester City, obviously. I don't see why we should look away from Liverpool. And Arsenal, um, I think by their own expectations, should definitely be expecting a, a top four finish. So for me, it would probably just be that fourth position. And, you know, Aston Villa definitely have the capability of taking it. But I don't say that with massive confidence over Tottenham or indeed Manchester United. I think Newcastle would largely depend on what they do in January and what they're able to get back from injury, because at the moment they look out on their feet a little bit. So yeah, I'm going to go for in any particular order or no particular order, Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal and oh, I'd love to see Villa get it. So yeah, the uh, the current top 4. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24/7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolera. Let's go to the transfer market and bring you in on this, uh, David. I mean, we spoke about it earlier. Musa um, Diaby and now being played a, what seems like a centre forward role. I mean, they, they've bought very well. Paul Torres, obviously, uh, to, to sort of stiffen that defence. How do you feel about how Villa have managed to put this squad together? Yeah, it's really impressive. Um, certainly Emery was quite clear in, in things he uh, wanted and uh, what he would like to have done and not done and and there were players at the beginning who I think there was some jeopardy potentially over their their future and and some of them have been moved out you know they've still got some work to do in that department because I know Leander Dendonka was one that they wanted to shift and and didn't manage to at the beginning there were some questions about Mings, Conser, Matty Cash but they've all risen up I, I would be intrigued to see if uh, there's some competition for Matty Cash through the market. Uh, I've heard a little bit that's suggesting that right back is an area that has not 
drifted from the focus. They obviously uh, did some surgery at, at left back. And then s- say you did uh, move out somebody like Dendonka, then do you bring in a body to reinforce that area of the pitch? There's always uh, speculation around Douglas Luiz. He signed a new contract, of course, when Arsenal were trying to sign him last January and been described to me as no chance for Arsenal to get him this January. And also p- people I've spoken to more of the Arsenal persuasion um, uh, dispute that, you know, they're, going for him or that he's the profile that everyone inside the club has want. So I think, especially with how Villa are doing, I would I would expect him to definitely stay for the time being. And then you continue to, you know, look in the forward parts of the pitch and, and some more competition up front and Ollie Watkins, whether he's challenged for, uh, he's obviously signed a new contract him, himself. Does Do they bring somebody in to vary things up to play with him to play instead of him I don't think they are looking to do masses I think they're pretty happy with what they've done so far and of course in in this era you need to you need to sell you need to raise revenues and and that will be a question for Aston Villa like it is becoming for a Newcastle and a Tottenham you know how can we and others by the way Manchester United even Arsenal how can we raise money to generate profits to then reinvest and and Villa have some very talented young players who of course can raise the most money especially if they're homegrown and have come through the system because they count for nothing on the um, balance sheets and and total profit if if they're sold. But then again, you probably want to utilise some of those players in the way that Ramsey has done so well, for example. Been really impressed on the whole. And, and it's still early days because Monchi has not long been at the club and he's renowned as a bit of a transfer guru from his time at Sevilla. Didn't go so well at Roma. Arsenal tried to appoint him and ended up getting Edu after Monchi turned it down. So let's see, you know, when he gets his teeth stuck into things you see them relentlessly linked with Spanish players at the moment for obvious reasons but you know I know from Emery's time at Arsenal he's very clear in what he wants and decisive in his thoughts in the market he didn't always get back to Arsenal Uh, the early indications are that he will be at Villa Um, and he'll need to be because uh, the challenge never goes away the competition is ever more vociferous and and the market will be as ever a key uh, indicator of the club's success yeah, just on David's last point there about in terms of, you know, Emery wants what he wants. I mean, there was a bit of um, uncertainty around how Pau Torres would potentially fit into this system at the start of the season. And, you know, without Tyrone Mings as well, who is seen as such a leader, an important figure, is he going to be phased out and, and what would happen? But Pau Torres has just fit in seamlessly. I mean, I, I've got the kind of past connections here at, the, uh, at Villa this season. So who, between the, which two players are the most passes being made? So Pau Torres to Lucas Digne is number one. Lucas Digne to Pau Torres is number two. Emi Martinez to Pau Torres is number three. Pau Torres to Conso is number four. So he's he's involved in more or less everything they do. So Is yeah. Pau Torres now becoming the pivot in the centre-back <laughs> for Aston Villa? <laughs> Certainly seems that way. And then, yeah, like, like I was saying before, the, the goal against Arsenal is from Pau Torres pass into midfield into Watkins. He's so good at those little dink passes into midfield to move him up the pitch. So, yeah, he had his convictions and he's stuck with it and, and he's been rewarded. I kind of guess Tyro Minx's injury has, in a way, helped Pau Torres because if you looked at pre-season, Emery was quite clear that Minx was still going to be the first-choice centre-back and they were going to work Pau Torres in the system. Although with two left-footed centre-backs, it kind of looks a little bit awkward. So the plan was for Pau Torres to play this hybrid left-back role. So 
in a at left back in uh, out of possession and in a back three in possession uh, and then pushed the fullbacks higher. But in pre-season, especially when they played Valencia in the last game, he was quite isolated. He exposed his weaknesses, you know, 1v1 mobility. He's not the most physical. Uh, but timing's getting injured, as meant he's gone into his favourite position, left side centre-back. And you see like what he was doing against Man City. When teams try and press him, he's, whip- he's still whipping the ball through. And he's probably embodies the type of calmness that Emery wants. Because if you go back to what we said at the top, in terms of the defensive players were clearing the ball in February against Arsenal, Paro Torres doesn't do that. He doesn't clear the ball. He, if he clears it, it's always a long diagonal out to the opposite side to find another winger. So it's all these little examples of Emery uh, getting his players, getting his ducks in row, basically. And this is the result. Yeah, I just want to quickly touch on something uh, we spoke about right at the top in terms of, I guess, the power. And I want to come to you on this, David. And also, please jump in, Jacob, on, I guess, the power Unai Emery has now at Aston Villa sounds like he's able to do what he wants with his team. And Jacob, you alluded to this, this sort of triangle of power that's sort of emerging at Aston Villa. David, can this be dangerous? Yeah, definitely. And I think the ownership's eyes cannot not be open to that. You know, they're really clever and successful people in their own right. They didn't have uh, experience in football prior to the Aston Villa project and they'll have enough people around them making them aware of that. And we've seen the cataclysmic damage that has been done to some clubs when they have placed too much faith in in one individual and their people. And as we touched upon earlier, when they depart, it can be disastrous. And that will be something that surely will be at the back of their minds. But the evidence we've seen so far is that, you know, they're going to build only with Emery and and here's the man that is is going to be sticking around with them and and this is a long journey together and they'll have to be prepared for some lows it won't always go we we've had so many of these conversations I about clubs who are doing well I've I've been on countless athletic pods where <laughs> we have um, we have hailed the progress of teams and within a month or so it's looking decidedly different but it's not easy to upset the apple cart in the premier league and and especially when you've got to abide so strictly by the profit and sustainability rules so h- how are you going to vary it up well everton boom and bust they tried to invest really heavily early on in the hope that by further down the line they would be in europe and uh, accessing new revenues that would allow them to sustainably challenge the elite uh, well look how that has gone they've ended up with the 10 point deduction essentially for overspending so villa have gone a, a slightly different route they they've put their faith in and, and money you know handsomely well paid but top coach who really is renowned for being considered a, in, among the biggest jobs when you go from Paris Saint-Germain to Arsenal that is you know among a bracket of coaches that uh, includes I don't know your Mourinho's and your Carlo Ancelotti's and Klopp's and Tuchel's Guardiola's even and so that was a massive coup for Aston Villa and and they're going to be relying on him to you know make them a force and 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 his connections too you know it was a deal that was brokered by George Mendes you know super agent the, the, these are and we've talked about this on Wolves for example these are 
quite delicate act because you know you allow people too much authority and 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 people come into a, a club and get involved in recruitment and 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 suddenly you're signing too many players from one place or one agent or but I would actually back these guys at Villa from the evidence so far to get those balances right and to mitigate the dangers with progress that can hopefully for them lead to a sustainable future. Villa will also argue that okay if. Unai Emery does leave, it will leave a significant hole in terms of the recruitment side, in terms of the club in general. But they've actually, over the last year, they've improved the infrastructure. They've just built, uh, refurbished the training ground, uh, built an inner city, inner city academy. Uh, they've got a network of clubs now under their umbrella. Uh, and it's, it's one of these aspects and projects in the club that, okay, it might take, uh, a punctured tie if Emery does leave. Everything else is leveling up. You know, I've, I've had discussions with people away from the football uh, side of things and the commercial revenue sides of things. And they're saying, because of Emery, we're having to elevate our levels. We're having to grow with him. So if Emery does leave, it's because, you know, high tides lift all boats in, in a way almost. If he does leave, they still, still leave him in a good place that they've actually robust enough to come back and probably carry on the project, albeit with someone else. Yeah, fantastic. Great, great way to end the pod. Let's end on an uplifting moment for, for, for the Villa fans. The future is bright for Aston Villa. Gents, thanks for your time on the pod, David, Jacob, and also Tom as well. Please remember to rate and review the podcast if you're enjoying it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark, with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. To listen to other great athletic football podcasts for free, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. The Athletic Football Podcast is an Athletic Media Company production. The Athletic.